You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with psychologist Dr. Linda Buchanan about why it's so hard to make changes, how to navigate ambivalence for ourselves and in helping others, and how narratives shape our lives. But first, Holly, how are you doing today? (laughs) I am doing pretty okay today. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm doing well. Good. I'm coming off of this last weekend – I know we're recording this on Thursday, um, but I am still kind of just sitting with some of the joy from this last weekend. We had some unexpected snow in Texas that just brought me right back to what it was like growing up in upstate New York during the winter season. And it was like Waco completely looked like Rochester. For a few, for a couple of days, actually, we still have a little bit of snow in our backyard, and it's Thursday, and it snowed on Sunday. So, wow. so that's been kind of fun. But yeah, yeah. So it's it's been a good week. We had that, and sweet Oliver turned five this week too. Yeah. So yeah, so it's it's been a pretty it's been a good week in in the Oxhandler home. So yeah, eventful for sure. Yeah, but. Yeah. What about y'all? What have you been up to this week? Um, well, it was Brooke's first week back at work for uh, the, the ministry she does. And so uh, that has been kind of shifting back into, uh, I was going to say our regular flow of things, but mm. you know, kind of regular being a relative term. Um, but so back into some of that, getting back into kind of the semester here. Um, but so other than that, it's been a pretty normal week, I guess, within our house, obviously, uh, I know we talked last the last intro about how kind of current event heavy mm-hmm. we've been recently, and so yeah. it's there's lots of that happening. But in terms of our house, it's been a, a pretty kind of standard week, which has been nice. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. holding space for all for the current events and finding new rhythms for this new year have been has been definitely interesting. I would say. Yeah. Yeah, but a good good practice. Good opportunities for practicing that. Well, let me ask you, speaking of kind of transitions and changes and things of that nature, Mm -hmm. are you someone, I'm curious, are you someone that really enjoys change kind of generically, (laughs) right? That enjoys change or someone that like would prefer kind of to shy away from uh, bigger changes, things like that? Oh my gosh. In Um, in a generic sense, obviously there's some changes are (laughs) good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, it shouldn't be a complicated question, but it really kind of feels like it is. So <laughs> it shouldn't Do be. Do in-depth self-analysis. I right know. <laughs> um, no, I I think I I like change in the sense that I like that it keeps me on my toes and I like that it keeps me um, thinking creatively and it helps me continue to innovate and look at things that I'm doing in new perspectives. And um, and so I like the change, but I think some sense of like predictability and some sense of continuity 
is helpful. So honestly, I think what's funny is as I'm talking, I'm thinking about like the academic year and the fact that mm-hmm. like there are these waves of big change that happen pretty uh, regularly throughout the year when we're starting a semester, when we're ending a semester, when we're moving into, you know, um, either summer break or holiday break and just kind of what all those rhythms look like. But so there's these there's these built-in changes, but there's still this predictability that like I know to anticipate like, okay, yeah. summer's coming up. And so I can start planning for like the work that the projects that I'm going to do during the summer or whatever. So, yeah. but the shifts in schedules and rhythms and expectations and meetings, like I think, I think I like that. So both and, I'm going to say both and. So, so- <laughs> Predictable change. Predictable change. Yes. It just kind of taps into my love for that illusion of control that like I know I don't have. But, you know, it gives me a sense of like, okay, I I can predict some things. But I do – I really do think that having some built-in change in my rhythms is actually really, really helpful for me. So what about you? I I think – a lot of the same things that you've mentioned, but I, I I do think I do enjoy like variety and changes and like a sense of newness and novelty where like those are things that Mm -hmm. tend to keep me kind of uh, motivated or exciting or like, you know, kind of new challenges, things like that. But I think the kind of the further on I've gotten into uh, life, the more, and I think partially this is just kind of how that goes. Right. But having kind of a, a baseline of, some sense of kind of standard rhythms, right? Like home life, mm-hmm. things like that is helpful kind of to have like an anchor point. But I, I do, I do sometimes, I guess. Yeah, I guess I also didn't answer it like very cleanly. <laughs> uh, but that's, look, that's the nature of this show, I think. That's There's right. No clean answers for most things. No, that's right. That's right. We lean into the messy and the gray and the both and and all of the above to yeah. the best of our ability. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which uh, that's it's funny you talk about kind of the both and right because mm-hmm. our conversation today with Dr. Buchanan uh, we talk a lot about ambivalence and kind of this idea of having conflicted feelings about making changes right like I want to change but also I kind of don't things mm-hmm. like that so that was a, a great a, a very nice segue there ten out of ten I love that I love our segues it's awesome well do I don't do you want to tell tell us a little bit more about this episode and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I set it up a little bit at the beginning. Speaking of change, kind of our testing out our mm-hmm. new way of, of dropping some of that in there. Uh, but we talk with Dr. Linda Buchanan, who is uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, we've actually met in person exactly once, and I think I mentioned that in our recording of kind of how that came to be. But you know, she she's written this book about ambivalence from the clinician side in terms of how to help clients work through ambivalence, things like that. But also she's written a workbook for it for individuals. And so she kind of talks mm-hmm. us through for our own selves when we're kind of conflicted or find it hard to make changes in our lives, what that looks like, how we can navigate that. And then from kind of the, the helping side, right, which a lot of our audience falls into, mm-hmm. how we can kind of navigate that with other people. Um, and so I think that it's super helpful, you know, in a very practical sense, just especially you know, we recorded this right before kind of the holidays and mm-hmm. I immediately thought like, hey, we, 
we can put this out kind of first thing because so many of us, either ourselves or the people around us, are trying to make some type of changes, particularly hard ones, around the new year, yeah. right? That tends to be kind of a, a standard thing. And so approaching that gracefully and not, you know, harshly, which we've we've talked about, I think, every year of the show of mm-hmm. that's why we shy away from kind of hard and fast resolutions. But I think she does a great job kind of talking through that, how narratives fit into that um, and and stuff like that. So I'm curious if you had any takeaways or, or anything like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm so, so grateful that you had um, invited her onto the show. I'm glad that you had made that connection with her before, you know, inviting her on. And and I, I learned a lot from this conversation. I think I, I'm going to be curious to listen back through it because it's been a little while since we had the conversation. I remember having a lot of moments through it where I really appreciated, you know, how she unpacked ambivalence and just trying to think through, you know, what does this look like in terms of navigating changes within our lives and such. But I am going to be really interested to listen back through this episode once once this all goes up. I'll be listening alongside yeah. with our listeners um, yeah. because it does feel like a lot of time has gone by and a lot has and happened. A lot of things, yes, yeah. a lot of things have happened um, since this conversation. And so I am looking forward to listening to it with fresh ears and willingness yeah. to learn all over again from Dr. Buchanan. Yeah. Well, we will go ahead and, and transition in. Uh, here is our conversation with Dr. Linda Buchanan. All right. Enjoy, y'all. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Linda Buchanan. She has been a psychologist for over 25 years and is the founder of the Atlanta Center for Eating Disorders, which is now a part of Walden Behavioral Care. She currently serves as the Senior Director of Clinical Services and has worked with thousands of individuals, couples, and families struggling with eating disorders and related things. Uh, She's also a blogger and an author, which she attributes directly to her clients. And I love this. I pulled this quote off your website, but it says, my wisdom as an author is directly related to the courage of the clients I've had the privilege to work with over the years. I learned more about human nature, growth, and change from them than I did in all of my graduate programs combined, which I just loved that quote so much I had to stick it in there. Thank you. But she's the author of A Clinician's Guide to Pathological Ambivalence, How to Be on Your Client's Side Without Taking a Side, The Understanding and Resolving Ambivalence Workbook, and more. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything else that would be good for our audience to know about you before we kind of dig in? I've actually been practicing for over 30 years now. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Whatever it is that you were looking at. And I've, I've done one other um, workbook as well called I'm Not Good Enough, How the Stories You Tell Yourself Are Ruining Your Life. Mm. Um, and my workbooks yeah. are kind of self-guided workbooks. Gotcha. Yeah. And I know I mentioned uh, before I hit record, but you and I actually met, it was right kind of the first year that I was in practice a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. I had this idea that I was going to make myself go to every open house there was to try and kind of network and stuff like that. And I think there's, I actually think there's a chance that yours was the only one that I ever actually ended up going to because I'd always kind of chicken out at the last minute, but uh, I didn't have an excuse that I could use to chicken out because I just don't like, ne- you know, it's always kind of weird and I don't like networking things in my own kind of social anxiety, but I made it to yours and it was great. So um. It's good to meet you there and glad to kind of reconnect a couple of years later. Yeah, same. Well, 
I noticed, and this is actually something that I just learned when I was prepping for this, but the way that you got into work as a mental health professional is actually something pretty similar to mine. And I think that a lot of our audience would resonate with. Can you tell us some about kind of how you got into the mental health field? Um, well, I was three years old. (laughs) 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 Seriously. Long path. To relate to how I actually think I got started. I'm going to tell, I will tell you a the story of when I was three, and it really informs many of the points I like to make about dealing with ambivalence and, and about narratives that we develop. But I was, um, obviously, this was a long time ago, and this was before we um, had car seats. And I was in the car with my parents. I was in the back seat standing on the floorboard, and my parents were, there's an old, bent, old car with a bench across the front seat, and my parents were um, in the front seat. We were driving somewhere. And they were arguing about how to say the word pecan or pecan. Mm. And they were going, (laughs) yeah, my dad is from South Georgia and um, they say pecan. And my mom was from Atlanta and she says pecan. And you know how it is with couples. Sometimes they start with a, a, you know, just a everyday kind of argument and it begins to escalate. And I just picture my little head binging back and forth between the two of them as they argued over how to say this word. And I finally piped up, I think, as I began to feel the anxiety rising in the car. And I said, well, why can't we just say pecan or pecan? And um, you see what I did, right? (laughs) Yeah. Compromise between the two. And they both stopped arguing and looked at me and chuckled. And I think my fate as a psychotherapist was actually sealed in that moment. Mm, I love that. (laughs) And I decided that, um, you know, anytime you can find, I mean, I didn't decide this in that moment, but I think it certainly steered me in learning that when you can find sort of a way to honor two sides of any debate or compromise, I mean, um, ambivalence either within or between people, that, yeah. you know, that's probably the place we need of the greatest wisdom. And I also learned that making people laugh is the best thing in the world. So I became a psychologist, yeah. but my alter ego is a stand-up comedian. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that little story. It just bringing it back to when you were so young. And it's relatable because we are a house divided on how to pronounce that word as well. Oh, you're kidding. (laughs) Yes. I'm from upstate New York and my husband's from Texas. And so um, I call it pecan and my husband calls it pecan. So I I just love that. That's awesome. Well, I know uh, on your website, I do love that story on your website. It also mentions that your career in helping people began as a youth director in a Methodist church. And then uh, you kind of quickly realized that you weren't equipped to help with some of the problems. And so then you kind of moved into, uh, okay, how do I learn more about helping people spiritually and psychologically and things like that, which I think our, our audience has mental health care professionals, but also faith leaders and just individuals. And I think that idea of man, at some point I realized like I need to find other ways to help people and kind of dig in more, uh, I think is is pretty relatable as well, especially to me. Cause I, before I went into uh, mental health as a profession, I worked in ministry as well. So I love that. Yes. Well, I was, so I was raised as a Christian. I am a Christian and um, I uh, went to college and um, studied psychology and was fascinated with psychology, but I I struggled with ambivalence because my psychology friends didn't understand my Christianity and my Christian friends did not understand my interest in psychology. And so I felt sort of, um, I felt ambivalent about which way to go. So 
my first job out of college was as a youth director. And so that was in a Christian setting, but my goodness, what I had been taught um, from Christian principles was just not enough to relate to these children. And that is what propelled me back to, uh, to, or propelled me forward to get my master's degree Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to find a way to integrate the two fields. And then that just fit right in line with my, my early um, experiences and training is to try to find wisdom on both sides of any kind of debate. I think usually that leads Mm. us to, you know, the, I guess the wisest path. Yeah. Hmm. No, I, I love that. And I, I think exactly what you're saying probably resonates. Again, it, it certainly resonates with me and I imagine for Robert too, but for many of our listeners, kind of where that, the, the wisdom of both sides and bringing them together. I love that. I know you've, you also have been engaged in work that is focused for years, primarily on eating disorders. I'm curious, how did that kind of lead you to having a passion for topics like ambivalence and narratives? And um, mm-hmm. can you unpack a little bit about that? Well, I, um, I kind of stumbled into the field of eating disorders when I was um, working for a counseling center that was one of the Psychological Studies Institute counseling centers, which is now Richmond University. I went, I, I went there for my master's and then um, worked for them for a few years. And this particular counseling center was right next to a hospital that treated eating disorders and the eating disorder unit closed. And um, coincidentally, and if you could see me, you'd see that my my fingers are doing quote marks. Mm -hmm. Several of those people came to me because of proximity. We were next door. And so I started learning everything I could about eating disorders while I was working with these folks. But I was also recognizing a lot of similarities as far as perfectionism. Uh, just an interest in women's issues and body image. And so I decided that they were my peeps and um, went back. Uh, but, but they, but there was many layers of difficulties with people who develop eating disorders. So that propelled me back to get my doctorate. And the entire time I was working on my doctorate, I focused on learning about eating disorders. So I would take a cognitive therapy class. And if there was a paper, I'd write the paper on cognitive therapy of eating disorders, et cetera. And what I learned about people with eating disorders is that they are very torn. They have a part of themselves that is is like, tries really hard to do the right thing. It's very perfectionistic, but they can never live up to those standards. So they need some way to sort of deal with the stress. And then the eating disorder provides a way of of, um, you know, trying to feel like you can control something because you can't be perfect. So they develop um, oftentimes very severe ambivalence. I mean, if you even think of, if you think of an eating disorder in general, the very thing that might be helping a person feel like they can cope and live is the thing that could also be killing them. So I learned everything I could about how to not just take a side, because if I took a side, like give up your eating disorder, they would just hold on to it more tightly. And so it was from them that I learned how to help people identify ambivalence and develop strategies for working through it. I never knew how to work through ambivalence before this. I, I just I just kept looking for the right answer. And a lot of times the right answer somehow is, or the, either there's many right answers or the right answer is somewhere between two paths. So yeah. that's sort of, I cut my teeth on dealing with that 
ambivalence from those folks. Yeah. I love what you talked about there in terms of, and uh, I'm going to ask for a kind of a definition, right? But when talking about this, you're talking about, okay, there's, you know, they want to give a thing up because they know maybe it's not healthy. And this, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of generalize it, right? Like, I think for a lot of us, we have things that we say, okay, I, you know, I wish that I uh, ate better or whatever it is. Like, there's a thing that I wish that I, I kind mm-hmm. of theoretically want to make this change, but also it's helping me with kind of the coping and the pressure and all that, right? Like, um, so I, I love that. Can you, because you've written books on ambivalence, like I mentioned, both for clinicians and also kind of workbooks for individuals, can you kind of define ambivalence and why it's important for us to understand? Sure. So ambivalence is very simply um, having two different feelings about the same thing at the same time or back and forth. And so it's like um, we all deal with ambivalence. Ambivalence is, is a natural part of being human because we have complex brains and we can see things from different angles we can put ourselves into other people's shoes, even if we feel differently. So we're, our brains are capable of that. And it, it's, it's great um, for those reasons. And also it's the foundation of, a, of creating new things um, and art. So ambivalence is important. Some people get stuck in ambivalence where it's like the two feelings or thoughts become so far apart that it doesn't seem like they can find a way to um, navigate, to choose. And so it can become, and on, on, in the clinician's book, I refer to it as pathological. I really hate that word, but I couldn't, I haven't <laughs> come up with a word to describe, to separate it from normal ambivalence. So in the book, I'm talking about the kind of ambivalence that interferes with people's ability to live um, a healthy, satisfying life, where they get mm. really stuck in ambivalence, such as developing disorders like substance abuse or eating disorders or relationship problems. Yeah. Yeah. Did did that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. And I know right there you gave maybe uh, bigger is a weird word, but kind of on the, the larger scale, what about ways that this plays out kind of in like everyday life? I mean, I'm trying to think of some good examples, mm-hmm. but what are some examples of, I don't, maybe we'll say like lowercase a ambivalence as opposed to kind of capital A <laughs> where it becomes, you know. <laughs> That's so great. great. I hadn't even thought about doing that. Big A and little a. Okay. Yeah. So. I get ambivalent when um, I usually walk my dog in the evenings, but I can oftentimes feel ambivalent about it, especially if I'm a little bit tired. Of course, if I'm sick, I'm not going to walk. There's no ambivalence there. If I feel really good and it's nice weather, I'm going to walk her. There's no ambivalence there, but sometimes there's ambivalence. And so I can get stuck in, should I walk or should I not walk or should I walk her? And I can waste time and energy in that back and forth. But one strategy I teach people to use is, is look for the mathematical compromise. And I don't mean compromise like you're giving in. I mean compromise because it honors a little bit of both. So there's a part of me that doesn't want to walk and there's a part of me that does want to walk her. So why not just walk her half as much as I usually do? So if I usually walk my dog Mm. half an hour and I have this ambivalence on this particular day, I cut right through it and just go, go 15 minutes. I mean, it just kind of relieves everything. It's like, Neither, neither side completely wins, but both side win a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm even thinking about like procrastination, right? So for me, when there's like big projects coming up, right? Like I feel this anxiety of like, okay, I, I should be, you know, I would like to work on this thing and be productive, but also uh, the procrastination feeds into that, but then also makes it better in terms of like, well, okay, it, it copes because then I get to go do something else and forget about it. Right. So like there's kind of both sides there where it's like this weird loop. Does that fit? 
Yes, it's interesting you say that because there's a whole handout or two in the workbook on procrastination as a sign of ambivalence. So now when I find myself procrastinating, I, instead of kind of what we usually do is go, why didn't I do that today? Or I'm going to do that first thing tomorrow. And then of course we don't do it again tomorrow. And instead of going through all that now, I, the minute I notice that I'm procrastinating, I go, okay, am I ambivalent about this? Because if you don't resolve the ambivalence, like, like I'm procrastinating making a doctor's appointment, I could procrastinate that for a year. I know people who can procrastinate right. more than that. <laughs> so maybe get in touch with what, with the ambivalence behind the procrastination, take care of that first. Mm-hmm. And then the, then the behavior is easier to do. That makes sense. That's that's such a good, helpful, practical tip for, for us. I love that. In fact, it's relevant for the next question that we had. Um, we, we recognize that this episode is going to release right around a time when a lot of us are trying to make some changes in our lives um, right at the beginning of the new year. So I'd love to hear, you know, why is it that the things that we want to change and maybe even maybe even recognize are unhealthy are often some of the hardest things to change. So um, <laughs> you're practically quoting a Bible verse, you know. <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> Paul <laughs> says, you know, that he why can't, why can't he do the very things he wants to do and instead does the things he hates. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I think that what happens when we make New Year's resolutions is that we are paying attention to only one side of the debate about change. Change is really, really difficult. And so I actually encourage people not to make New Year's resolutions um, and instead mm. to consider a vision and start working toward a vision, but not a resolution. So, for instance, I want to exercise more. Well, if I need to exercise more, then there must be a part of me that hasn't been wanting to exercise more. And I have to come to peace with that, because if this is a change, it's not going to just happen because I have the thought about it. The thought is like the weakest behavior anyway, thoughts are. And so I need to be compassionate and talk to myself about, well, why is it that I haven't been exercising? Why haven't I wanted to? What's hard about it for me? And remove some of those obstacles with compassion. And what we tend to do is just go black or white. I'm either successful or I'm not. And of course, that's a setup for failure. Hmm. Yeah. Talking about it as a vision, like, well, why would I want to exercise and what am I working toward? And is it, is it about appearance? Because that's not going to be a very good motivator for most of us. Cause that's too laden with shame. Yeah. Um, is it about health? How can I make it feel like a gift to myself? How can I, if it's, if it's hard to exercise, if I'm telling myself I'm going to exercise every day and I find myself not doing it, then what's the compromise mm-hmm. every other day? So these yeah. are just, I'm, I'm kind of just um, free associating different kinds of strategies for dealing with, um, you know, a, a desire to change something. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think it makes perfect sense. And having that vision, I think is really helpful. And the ways perhaps that we can kind of break it down into those those more manageable steps to help us move towards that rather than just having a resolution, I think can be really helpful. So I, yeah. yeah, I like that. That's good. And look at it, each day as a new day instead of, you know, kind of all or nothing, I'm doing it or I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And each day gets to stand on its own merit. Yeah. Without, and then letting go of guilt or shame from the day before because shame will absolutely stop all progress. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. It just yes. it drains energy. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's perfect. Because our, our next question was about uh, what are, you know, for an individual, what are some ways of kind of navigating that, right? And I love the way you talked about it there, right? And people that have listened to the show for a long time will will know that one of my favorite questions is what's the smallest step you can take, right? Like every day, what's the small Because, and I often reference New Year's resolutions, right? If you say, well, I'm going to go to the gym seven days a week and only eat leafy greens. Mm. No, you're not right? Like you're going to, you're going to quote unquote fail at that. And then you're going to feel bad about yourself. Right. But if you say, okay, I'm going to cut out some uh, sugars or I'm going to stop drinking sodas or, you know, like if you do like a small step and then after a while, take another, right. Things like that. Any other kind of strategies within kind of the like individual, any other ones that kind of come to mind? Well, having conversations with yourself, the way you would have a conversation with a friend around any attempt at change because we talk to ourselves often, most times differently than we talk to friends. And so if a friend <laughs> said, you know, I want to exercise more, I know it would be good for me, but I can't seem to do it. We would probably say, well, let's talk about it. We'd be compassionate. We would listen. Um, we'd listen to what makes it hard. But with ourselves, we tend to kind of not even have the conversation. It's just, you didn't do it today. Why didn't you do it today? You better do it tomorrow. You know, we get shorter and sharper. So I, um, I coach people on, on the fact that you have a relationship with yourself that needs attention and the same kind of, um, caring and consideration, uh, that you would give anybody else. Otherwise you're not living according to your own values as as far as the way you treat people. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's that's good. I'm glad you elevate that. That's really important. Yeah, I think this actually blends really well because I know uh, you've written about narratives, and mm-hmm. that's actually one of one of the two blogs has to do with changing your story. And what I was thinking, you know, what comes to mind for me is how often when we don't do something, you know, we say, "Oh, well, you're just lazy," right? Or like, "Oh, you're just, you know, whatever," like unmotivated, right? Like all these kind of things that have kind of a moral implication that I think maybe fit into that, right? Like, okay, the narrative for myself is I'm lazy, right? So can you tell us some about like how narratives factor into this and mm-hmm. unpack some of that? Well, sure. So uh, first of all, everybody does develop a narrative um, as they grow up. And the narrative is sort of their understanding about how the world works and their place in it and what to expect and what is expected of them. And this narrative is based on many factors. So Uh, It can be based on, of course, whatever um, events or experiences you have growing up. It's based on uh, what age you are, if you go through stress growing up, because because your brain is developed um, at different ages, you interpret and um, process things differently. It's based on how sensitive you are, um, just in your wiring, not not like you've learned to be sensitive, but just in your physiological wiring. Like I always like to talk about my two cats, that if I drop a glass and it breaks and makes a loud noise, one of my cats jumps, hits the ceiling, goes screeching from the room, not to be seen again for two hours. Mm. And the other one, (laughs) the other one in the same, in the same situation will look at me, wag his tail, roll his eyes. And say, you better clean that up before I get my, a piece of that in my paw. Right. (laughs) And they live in the same house, but one of them lives in a more dangerous world than the other, simply because of how he's wired. (laughs) And as humans, we're all wired differently, too. And turns out there's a lot of research 
that's been done in the past 10 years or so about brain chemistry. And if you don't produce as much serotonin as someone else, that's one of the factors in being more sensitive. Now, sensitive is a good thing. It's a blessing and a burden, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. the, The more sensitive you are, the more likely you are to develop a narrative that is harm avoidant. Now that makes sense, right? My first cat wants to avoid. Right. So the narrative can say things like, don't trust people. You have to be perfect to be loved. So you will develop the narrative, not only based on maybe what you're taught, but also how sensitive you are. Mm. So, so everybody develops a narrative and, and some of it's helpful, like don't touch the stove, it's hot. But oftentimes there are beliefs and rules in our narratives that aren't helpful anymore. They probably made sense when we formed them, but they're not um, guiding us any longer. And that's what the narrative is meant to do. So um, yeah. examining that narrative, kind of getting back to the those core beliefs, as they're often called, and reevaluating how did I learn those and do they still apply, can really um, help a person shift in the quality of life and also the relationships they have with people. Yeah, that's good. That's yeah. really good. I love that example, though, with your cat. I'm going to have to remember that with the two cats <laughs> and how they respond like that. That's such a <laughs> such a good example. Oh, and then it explains why a lot of times I'll work with parents and they'll say, well, she's the only one. She's the only one who's mm-hmm. having, he's the only one who's given us any trouble. And it's like, okay, that's, that's possible that you can, two, two kids can be in the same environment and have very different temperaments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's good. So uh, our audience includes, like I mentioned, mental health clinicians, but also faith leaders or just other individuals that people might come to for advice or help when kind of making a decision or encountering a challenge, right? Uh, I'm thinking about obviously clients now, but also back when I worked in ministry, you know, someone comes to me and it's it's obvious that they're thinking, okay, I need to break up with my boyfriend or whatever it is, right? But then after you they you have the same conversation again and again and again and you know sometimes for the person who is on the giving end of of help or whatever you want to call it is like hey what i thought we made this decision last time right so what tips or ideas would you have for someone in that type of situation whether it's clinician or the faith leaders or, or other individuals to help people when they come to them for making decisions or you know kind of working with that ambivalence Sure. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to tell another story um, from when I was a youth director and I, I made a terrible mistake, but it's such a common mistake that all helpers make, including myself still to this day at times. And that is, well, I, I don't want to put it this bluntly, but it's giving advice. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. it can't it really, but my first experience, I think um, where this backfired for me was I was a youth director and there was this one particular gal in the program who um, would hang out and talk with me. She'd stay after meetings and stuff. And, and um, she was probably about 15. And of course, a lot of what she talked about was how uh, her mother didn't understand her. And she, um, and I would, I would be so sympathetic and compassionate. And um, she would say, if only she understood me like you do. And what I did without knowing it is I fell into a split. So there was a split between her mom and herself, um, which was probably normal because she was 15 and moms <laughs> at that age develop conflict. But I was taking her side 
and I didn't really know the mom. So it was kind of an unfair thing to do, which I think therapists and helpers do all the time because we assume mm. that the person is coming with a, with an accurate perception, but we have to remember that everybody's perception is distorted according to their own narrative and their own mm-hmm. viewpoint. Yeah. So um, over time, I noticed um, in church that the mom was starting to give me some kind of looks, like looking down the pew at me. And I thought, oh, well, wait a minute. No, I'm sure she's so grateful that I spend extra time with her daughter. I, I know she appreciates all I'm doing. But then the looks um, increased, and then the gal started coming less often and quit finally coming to the youth program, which is really upsetting to me. And I didn't understand what had happened until later. And I started learning about family systems and just learning a lot of things you learn in graduate school. And it occurred to me that I had unbalanced a relationship for the worse instead of for the better. Mm. I had so mom and I think I picture it kind of like this. Mom and daughter are teetering on a um, teeter totter. If you remember those things from decades ago, which they won't allow in the, in the playgrounds anymore because they're dangerous. And I went over and sat on the one with the daughter and completely unbalanced a situation. So in one of my classes, I did a gestalt practice. It was a practice and gestalt therapy is where you recognize that a whole truth is made up of lots of parts. And so um, I was, it was role play is one of the things that gestalt therapists do. And I decided because it was still bothered me so much about this, this youth, I decided to play the mom in the role play and things came out of my mouth that I couldn't believe. She, as I played her, said things like, uh, you know, you made my job as a mom harder. Did you ever think to come talk to me? Um, Of course she liked you. You're young and you don't have to tell her to eat her vegetables and on and on. And I was really kind of blown away. And I I sort of decided then I don't want to ever fall into a split like that and make something worse. So I developed an entire way of helping people that if you notice the subtitle in my book, how to be on your client's side without taking a side Hmm. to help to help me help people find their own wisdom instead of me telling them, even if it's agreeing with them, telling them something they should do. So somebody comes to me and says, I think I should break up with my boyfriend. Okay. So you haven't yet. So let's talk about the part of you that wants to, and the part of you that doesn't. So my strategies are to help the person find their own wisdom. Mm. That's so good. Yeah. And that, that's so hard as well. And I think you spoke to it well there, right? Because when people come to us with things like that, you know, maybe we've seen them have some fights or whatever. And we think like, oh, I'm helping here. If I say like, yeah, you should. Cool. Like, I agree. Right. Like kind of affirm that. But then when they don't, you know, maybe it's, you know, we get frustrated or we say, oh, what the heck? You know, and obviously that's like one example, but I think it is so hard to kind of not choose a side because that's so often what we kind of want to do. There's like, we, we think, okay, I see maybe the best option here, forgetting that there's obviously another side to it that is a very real factor. That's exactly right. It is so hard and we forget. <laughs> or we don't even, yeah, we forget that we don't know. I mean, there have been so mm. many times in these 30 years of practicing that, that somebody's talked about somebody and I just thought, oh, this person is horrendous. And then the person comes in and I see the rest of the story. And I think I've made some major mistakes in my career in trying to help people do what I think they need to do and what they think they need to do. And I'm, I just wonder sometimes 
if that was, yeah. I, I don't think that was my place. Now, of course, we're, if we're talking about physical abuse, there are, there are circumstances, but I think for the right. most things that people come in with, it's not our place to, to take a side, but we can develop, yeah. we can still work really hard in helping them figure it out. Yeah, that's good. I like, I like that shift in empowering the client. I mean, that's such a big part of, you know, in social work with the empowerment model. And so that helping and really working with and, and empowering the client or the other person to discern, I think that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, one thing that we love to ask our guests too, um, especially recognizing all of the good work that you've done, the books and workbooks that you've written and the ways that you are, you know, serving others and working with others in so many different capacities. We love to ask our guests when they come on what their hope is for this work. And so we'd love to hear from you, Dr. Buchanan, about like, what is your hope for this work that you do? Oh boy. Um, Well, I tell you, as a psychologist, one of the saddest things that I ever witness is when Um, a person develops a narrative and that narrative has been informed by pain and then they recreate the same pain or similar pain in their adulthood because of the narrative that they formed as a child by believing it. For instance, if they develop a narrative that says I'm not worthy, well, then they are going to live that way and they're probably not going to project, you know, a sense of self-worth And therefore, the types of people who they connect with sort of buy it. They buy the narrative oftentimes. Mm. And and then it recreates the same problem. Or if I even if I say that people won't understand me, so I'm not going to try to express myself. Well, then that creates the same thing that they're fearing, that if you don't express yourself, people won't understand you. And it becomes what is called a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I guess my hope um, has always been that people would be able to recognize that they have more power over what happens in their lives, at least once they hit, you know, late teen adult or or adulthood. They have more power than they know. Um, They have Mm -hmm. more control than they give themselves credit for. Mm -hmm. But it it begins with, you know, self-awareness and self-compassion, which oftentimes are... Oftentimes, a person has to be coached in how to begin to develop those things. So, you know, mm. books yeah. and things like that is is my contribution to that. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's so good. Hey, listener, if you want to connect with Dr. Buchanan, you can find her at lindapockbuchanan.com. You can, uh, right there, you can read her blogs uh, from one therapist to another and change your story, change your life. You can connect with her on facebook.com slash Dr. Linda Buchanan, or you can buy her books on her website or on Amazon. If you want to connect with Holly, you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Dr. Buchanan, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking yeah. with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, actually, the thought I was just having was how nice it was to talk with the both of you because you're so um, you're so encouraging and uplifting. So, <laughs> um, and and for your listeners, just um, be good to yourself, be nice to yourself, be compassionate, just like you are to others, and you know, life will be. I will be better. 
thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 